Uh, good morning. It is uh, great to be with you, even uh, virtually. And I would ask if you would turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. We are continuing our study this, this morning in Malachi chapter 2. We are going to be reading Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, through chapter 3, verse 5. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, through chapter 3, verse 5. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithful, faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord God, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord and is in the days of old and in the former years. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who false, swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you this morning again in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice that he is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And we thank you, O God, that, uh, that you have uh, woven the web of our time that the lives that we live have been orchestrated and have been shaped and developed by your will, that we have had so little to say about the time and place in which we were born, the time and place in which we've been raised, the circumstances of our lives, Lord, so much is beyond our control. And yet, oh God, we acknowledge and trust in your sovereign grace. We trust in your ability to take us where we are and to move us in the direction you want us to go. We thank you for the salvation so freely given. We thank you for everyone here who has been born again of your spirit, who has eternal life given to them by your grace, oh God. We thank you and praise you, that you are a God who changes lives, that you open the eyes of the blind, both physically and spiritually, that you make lame people walk, 
and those without power to have strength. And so, God, as we come into your presence now, we ask for your help, Lord. We ask for the ability to understand your word, that we might first have understanding. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we pray that we might fear you, that we might show that reverence, that respect, that we might bow ourselves before your presence, acknowledging you as God and not ourselves. Lord, we just thank you for everyone here. We, Lord, we come, we're all broken in some way or another. We all have wounds and scars. We all have weaknesses and frailties. And yet you, Lord, know us as we are. And you do not treat us as our sins deserve. But you are kind and our Father. And we trust in your mercy. And so as we look into your word this morning, we pray for healing. We pray for hope. We pray for encouragement and strength. We pray for conviction and the courage to do what is right. For Lord, we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. After college, uh, Jim Palmer took a ministry job at Willow Creek Community Church the famous mega church in the suburb of Chicago, before moving to the Nashville area to start Springbrook Community Church, an affiliate church that eventually drew about 600 people per week. Two devastating events in the lives of church members made former evangelical pastor Jim Palmer step back and question everything he had taught about God. Palmer, who started the church in Brentwood in the 1990s, said the first was a revelation that a staff member was beating a spouse. The second came when a mother-to-be bolstered by Palmer's sermons that anything is possible with God if you have enough faith, believed your unborn child with a fatal disorder could survive, and the infant died soon after birth, and the mother blamed herself. That triggered, he said, how I came. How can I preach this stuff, Palmer said. Beneath the appearance and the surfaces of people's lives, there's a level of suffering and brokenness for which my theology did not touch. Those cataclysmic moments about two decades ago set Palmer down an introspective path that led him to leaving the ministry, the end of his marriage, and the eventual realization that he no longer believed in the supernatural. His lack of faith, his lack of understanding, his lack of theology led to his faithlessness to his brothers and sisters in Christ, to his spouse, and ultimately to his God. As we have looked at Malachi, we have been reminded that that the natural order of things by ourselves, there is a spiritual drift that we are very vulnerable to, that we don't stay in one place, that there is a gravitational force pulling us away from God, whether we attribute that pull, that pull to our own carnal, sinful nature, or whether we attribute it to the world in which we live and the culture around us, whether we attribute it to spiritual forces unseen and unknown to us, the fact remains that there is a force, a pull that would lead us away from faithfulness, that would lead us away from trusting in the Lord that would lead us away from walking with our God in humility and in grace. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, the last messenger that God sent, was speaking to a people who were guilty of this very drift. 
They who had been witnesses to God's faithfulness in exile, they who had been experiencing God's blessing in the return from that exile to the promised land, they who had witnessed not only the rebuilding of the temple, but the restoration of Jerusalem as an independent, autonomous entity, a city-state that had a measure of freedom and protection because the walls had been rebuilt and the security of the people had been established. They who had witnessed these miracles, God's divine promise kept some 70 years later after the captivity, they now had begun to drift spiritually. Even though the temple was there, even though the priesthood had been reestablished, even though the sacrifices had been reinstated, these people were now spiritually adrift. And we had seen in the first portion of the book that God addresses the priests, those who are charged with the instruction of the people, those who are spiritual leaders, those who are supposed to bring the message of God to the people and the needs of the people to God. They were the ones guilty of tolerating inappropriate sacrifices. They were the ones who've been complaining about the quality of those sacrifices and despising those sacrifices and not taking God seriously, not fearing the Lord. And God had called them to task. But now as we come to chapter 2, verse 10, we notice that there's a bit of a shift. There's a bit of a shift. And in this passage, we see that Malachi begins to include himself in this equation and broadens the message that is not just directed at the priests, but rather the entire community. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And so what we find here in this, the passage we read this morning, exhortation and encouragement because of the faithlessness of the people, because of their inconsistency and their breaking faith and breaking the covenant, we are exhorted and encouraged to be faithful to God by being faithful to each other, that we are being called to be faithful to God by being faithful to the covenant. Uh, we are called to be faithful to God by being faithful to our spouses. And why? Because God is faithful. He is coming and he will judge. But let us take a look now at this first verse in chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one father? And has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? I would draw your attention to that word faithless. It is a key theme in this passage, the idea of breaking faith. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, dynamic when we think about this, right? Because when you think about what it re is required to be faithful, like what's required for me to be faithful? What's required for you to be faithful? Now, of course, we could talk about duty and obligation, right? We could talk about the idea that we do things, we're faithful to things, because that's our responsibility. But beneath that, beneath that, that, that fundamental sense of duty and obligation, there must be a faith. There must be a faith. Now, my wife and I have been watching the television series, The Crown. I don't know if any of you have watched any of it. Uh, it is a bio documentary uh, TV series about Queen Elizabeth from the very beginning of her 
assuming the throne at such a young age, early in her 20 years, and tracing her life through all the tumultuous periods, throughout all of the upheavals of the British Empire, through the uh, changes that society is going through. But what struck me is that so often when when her personal uh, desires and wants and issues are at stake, she's reminded that she's not just Elizabeth, but that she is Elizabeth Regina, that she is the queen. Now, it's an interesting thing because there is such a great emphasis placed on duty and obligation. But beneath it and beneath the decision making is the idea that she believes in the crown. She believes in this fundamental institution. Now, we can, as Americans, we like sometimes we wrap our head around these things. Like the British, they're crazy. You know, like we look at them and think, what is wrong with these people? You know, like like the, all the pomp and the circumstance and all of the, the brouhaha and, oh, my gosh, they care about who marries who and all this stuff going on. And yet, for them, particularly in the royals, there is a faith in the crown. And it's their faith in the crown that holds them to their obligations and their duties. And brothers and sisters, I have a question for you this morning. Do we have faith in the crown? Do we have faith in the crown? I'm not talking about some earthly potentate. I'm not talking about some earthly kingdom. I'm talking about do we believe and do we trust in the king of kings? And Lord of Lords. Because in the end, our faithfulness is going to be is going to be based upon what we really believe. What we truly believe is going to determine whether we are faithful, faithful to one another, faithful to our God, faithful to our spouses, faithful to our commitments. Because you cannot impose an obligation on people that they don't believe in. You cannot impose a duty on someone and then expect them to do it if they don't believe in it. Oh, of course, duty and obligation will carry you so far. And lots of people will go through rituals and will carry on traditions for the sake of the tradition. But their heart is not in it. And Malachi has already judged and has pronounced judgment on the priests for the very same thing, this empty religion that is devoid of significance and meaning in their heart. And so we come here now and we see that in verse 10, Malachi asks the question, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And he's really making an appeal to faith. He's asking them, what do you believe? Do you really believe that God created us? Do you really believe that there is one father over us all? And of course, how you answer that question is going to then make the second question so much more poignant. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Malachi is pointing out to a spiritual condition in the community where people are not trustworthy. They are, they are betraying their confidences. They are, they are betraying their brothers and sisters. They are not being faithful to the covenant that God has given to the community. They are not loving their neighbor as themselves. But he goes on to say in verse 11 and 12, Judah has been faithless. 
and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Again, there is this idea of being faithless. And the word abomination there is a very strong word. It's a word that's used in a lot of different contexts to describe a lot of different things in the Bible. But what it communicates is that this is a detestable thing that Judah has been doing, that they've been doing it in Israel and in Jerusalem. They profane the sanctuary of of their God. And what is this thing that they have done? Well, he's married the daughter of a foreign god. He's married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Simply put, the priests, the people, were marrying with unbelievers. They were marrying the daughters of a foreign god. They were unequally yoked, to use Paul's term for it in the New Testament. And what does God say about this? What does God say about this? It's an abomination and a profanity. That's a, those are powerful words. They're powerful words to describe what, for many people, is the most important relationship in their life. It's a, those are powerful words of censorship regarding that which is most intimate in our lives. Those people whom we choose to love, those people who love us in return. And in this context, God is saying, look, you are marrying the daughters of a foreign God. Now, this does not have to do with race and ethnicity. We know from the historical a record of the Old Testament that God is concerned about the spiritual welfare of his people. That when the law was given, he warned the children of Israel not to take daughters of the nations around them or to, t- or to have their daughters marry their sons. Why? Because it would draw them away from the Lord. It would draw their hearts away from the Lord. We also know that God is a God who is inviting people to trust him. The most beautiful love story of the Old Testament is the story of Ruth. And what is that story about? It's about a a foreigner, a Moabitess, who is outside of the covenant, outside of the promises, who for faith in Yahweh, for faith in the one true God, follows her mother-in-law into a land of, of strangers and becomes married to Boaz. And who is she? She's in the line of Jesus of Nazareth. She is in the ancestry of Jesus. She's in the lineage of Jesus. This is not about ethnicity. It's not about race, but it's about spiritual relationship. It's about spiritual relationship. And over the years, there have been many people who, as Christians, have been enticed and involved in relationships with members who are not believers. And inevitably, in that relationship, one of two things is going to happen. There's either going to be conversion or there's going to be compromise. And what I mean by that is that if I'm a believer and I'm in in love with a non-believer and we get married, there's going to be either a conversion of her to my point of view or a conversion of me to her point of view. Or there's going to be a compromise where neither one lives out their 
quote unquote faith completely. And this is why God censors this. Now, I know that there have been many relationships that have ended really well. And this is not to say that we're not supposed to have a relationship with unbelievers. This is not to say that we're not supposed to interact with unbelievers. That is not what the point here is. But when you take the most intimate, most important human relationship we have, and you are then going to marry that person to someone who's not a believer, it is going to be a very, very sad day in the kingdom of heaven. Because the impact is going to be felt most on the offspring of that child, of those children, of that relationship, I should say. And so we look here and we see this, right? And we see this idea of faithlessness. And then we come to verses 13 to 16. And what do we see in verses 13 to 16? And this is another thing you do, he says. You weep at the altar. You weep and you groan. Why? Because the Lord no longer accepts your offering. He no longer regards your sacrifice. He doesn't accept it with favor from your hand. And of course, we might explore and speculate as to how the priests and the people knew this. How did they perceive that their offerings and their sacrifices were not being accepted by God? We don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know. Perhaps there was material blessing that was no no longer evident. Perhaps there was declining crops. Perhaps there was a sense of futility and frustration in the land that was being uh, felt on, on multiple levels. Maybe it was just a sense of disconnect with God in their worship, that as they were going through this, they said that they were offering these things, but heaven was silent. It was as if they were praying and the, and the prayers never got beyond the ceiling. And they question, why does he not accept this? And he goes on to say, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your covenant and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless. If you, if you're in the habit of underlining your Bible, if you're in the habit of underlining that no matter what translation you use, you really ought to take note of the fact that twice in this passage, Malachi says, guard yourselves in your spirit. Take heart. Take notice of your spirit. Take care of your spirit. Because again, <clears throat> what is the root of this faithlessness that he's describing here? It is a spiritual problem. Now, it is, um, it has been observed by multiple commentaries. If you read commentaries on Malachi, you're going to observe that verses 15 and 16 of Malachi chapter 2 are probably some of the most difficult verses in the Hebrew Bible to translate. There are numerous ways that they're translated. If you have different English versions, you may see the variations and the nuances in the translation. But what we can say, regardless of the nuance, is that God is disciplining and not accepting the sacrifices because the men of Israel are divorcing their wives for no good reason. They have been faithless. They are sending their wives away. And he is 
warning them and reminding them and exhorting them to not be faithless. To not be faithless. Now, it's interesting because as we've been going through this portion, we can look at these three things that we've been talking about so far as three very distinct things. In other words, there's a faithless, a faithlessness to one another. There has been a faithlessness to the covenant because they've been marrying ungodly women, unbelieving women, and they've been faithless in their, towards their spouses. But it is possible, and it's certainly not exclusive in this understanding, but it is possible that these are not completely separate issues. That what Malachi is describing here is that those Jewish men who've returned from exile to Babylon, um, from Babylon to Israel, they've returned to Jerusalem, that these Jewish men are divorcing their wives to marry pagan women. And in doing that, they're being faithless to the community. Clearly, there's indication of this in Ezra and Nehemiah, which records the, the intermarriage between the believing and the unbelieving communities. We look at this, and what we can glean from it for ourselves is that God takes a very dim view of divorce. Some of the translations render the verses that God hates divorce, that he hates divorce. So as we look at this passage, as we consider the passage and we look at this passage, we ask to ask ourselves, in the context of this situation, God is speaking to a very specific audience, men who have turned their backs on their wives and who are marrying other women. Many of them may be even pagan women who are not following God, and as a result of that are drawing these men's hearts away. But as we've said from the beginning, we look at this passage, and we don't just see it in the context of this this 5th century experience B.C., and then we say, well, it has no bearing on our lives. But rather, as we've been reminded over and over again, in the New Covenant, we are the priesthood, that we are a holy priesthood, and that we are a, a royal priesthood. And as a result, we have a responsibility in the to follow our great high priest and to be representatives of the people to God in our intercession and of God to the people in our witness. And so there is a great application here for us in terms of this. Now, over the years, it has been observed, noted, and recorded that God hates divorce. And of course, when we, when we say that, it's funny to me how that the, the uh, use of this verse, or the application of this verse, is usually at the moment when a couple is actually considering getting divorced. In other words, a couple is coming to elders, or a man is coming to his elders, wife is coming to their elders, or they're going to their pastor, their spiritual leaders, and their marriage is in desperate straits. And the pastor, the elderly, will pull out Malachi and say, you know, God hates divorce. Another context in which this verse has been used historically has been in the context of uh, 
overwhelmingly it's been women, but sometimes it can even be men when they are in a very abusive relationship, a very abusive marriage, and they're struggling with what to do in this context. And either they or someone else will say to them, remember, God hates divorce. We need to recognize, we need to understand that while every divorce is a tragedy, not every divorce is a sin. Now you might say, well, how do you know that? Because God says, I have given a written of certificate of divorce to the nation of Israel. God uses divorce as an analogy to describe his relationship ending with the nation of Israel. So when we look at this and we see this verse, how can we apply this verse and these, this passage about being faithful to our spouses in a way that is proactive and not simply reactive. The reality is, is that every divorce, as Jesus said, is the result of a hardness of heart. Which is why Malachi has the, Malachi tells us, the Lord says to us, guard yourselves in your spirit. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless to the wife of your youth. It is my firm conviction that no one gets married. No one gets married with an intention to be divorced. No one stands before an altar, before a judge, before a priest, before a minister, and as they're going through their vows, thinks, okay, I think I'll get divorced in five years. You know, I have a goal to be married three years and then I'll get divorced. Nobody has that. Now, there are people I know who go into marriage and in the back of their mind think, if this doesn't work out, I'll get divorced. But even in those circumstances, their goal isn't to get divorced. Their, their objective isn't to have their marriage end in failure and end up in court and having to settle assets and take care of custody of the kids and go through the pain of like an amputation in order to restart their lives in a hopefully better way. Nobody goes into a marriage relationship with that agenda in mind. And so, if that is true, then the goal should be to live our lives today in such a way that divorce isn't an outcome in the future. And as God's people, as we look at this passage, as we try to think about how we can apply this passage, there are many things that we can take away from this. The first thing that we could take away from this is that God takes marriage very seriously, that God intends marriage to be sacred, to be lifelong partnership between one man and one woman. 
and that faithfulness is the norm and it should be the standard. That God wants us to recognize, however, that being unmarried isn't a curse and that marriage isn't the end all and be all and the final objective of every person. Because if you took that as the agenda, then being married would be better than being unmarried. And therefore being married to anyone would be back being, be better than being married to no one. Like clearly God is not saying that because he does not want us to marry just anyone. There will always be more non-Christians than Christians. There will always be more non-Christian women than there are. Than, than Christian women. There will always be more non-Christian men than Christian men. There will always be the case. We will always be a little flock. And to make things even worse, sometimes the non-Christians in your life may actually be more admirable and attractive than the Christians in your life. And while marriage is a sacred institution, and while marriage is holy and meant to be a lifelong commitment between two people, we must not be faithless to God by marrying just anyone. We want to be faithful to God first and faithful to our spouses. And so as we look at this and we think about this passage, we look at this this, this idea of guarding yourselves in your spirit, to guard ourselves in our spirit. You know, there are lots of things that we can say about strengthening a marriage and building a marriage up. And, and we talk about premarital counseling and, and requiring that. When Rose and I, when I'm asked to marry somebody, it's like, uh, I don't marry unless we go through premarital counseling. It's just like the basic thing. Why? Because, listen, you know, you got to go through driver's ed to get a driver's license, right? Something as, as inconsequential as that. You got to do like the course and six hours on the road before you get your driver's license. But you can walk into a justice of the peace and like get married with no preparation whatsoever. Let me tell you, marriage is a lot harder than driving. So we can talk about premarital counseling. We can talk about marriage enrichment courses. We can talk about the church doing things to encourage marriage and encourage the strength of marriage. We can talk about the church doing things to help young people who are single to be, feel welcome and loved and not like they're second-class citizens because they're not married. We can talk about creating a culture that, that, in, that celebrates life, whether it's married life or single life. And we can talk about creating community where single people and married people intermingle with one another. I mean, the church has been so divided. You go to, you go to some churches and it's like you got the singles group and the married group. And, and, you know, when you get married, you leave one and join the other. The two shall never be together. But, but beyond all of that, which I'm not saying that's not, those things aren't good. They are good. But at the heart of it, divorce is a spiritual issue. At the heart of it, successful marriage is a spiritual issue. Yes, communication skills. Yes, conflict resolution skills. Yes, those things are important. But they're secondary to the heart issues. And Malachi is reminding us to guard our hearts, to guard our spirits. 
so that we're not enticed by our loneliness to just pursue a good any old way we want. It's good to be in community. It's good to be married. The Bible says, you who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor of the Lord. But how do I reach that good? How do I reach that goal? The other thing that we will notice in this passage, and one that really does bear some observation, is that there is this very, um, how shall I say, awkward, interesting, hard to understand statement that the Lord makes. The man who does not love his wife but divorces or says the Lord God, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And that statement is a, is an interesting one, and it, it causes a lot of um, reflection on those who interpret it and try to understand it. Like, what was God saying to the people? Well, one thing that he's saying, and I believe this is consistent with the image of divorce, is that the word for divorce is similar to the word to amputate, to cut off. And, and so the image here is of someone who is like violently amputating a limb. And as a result of that is covering their garment with the blood and the gore. And there is, and it's a very powerful image, again, reminding us that, that divorce is not without consequence. Even if it's a divorce that's biblically permissive, it's still not without consequence. It's still not without pain and scarring and suffering. The other thing that might be implied by this is that the method of the divorce is violent. In other words, the women, the wife of your youth, does not want this to happen. And the men are literally violently throwing their wives out. And it raises the issue of domestic violence. It raises the issue of, of the very sacred institution of marriage being so corrupted by sin that it becomes not a place where safety and security is celebrated, but where violence and fear and intimidation are present. It is a sobering, it is a sobering fact that domestic violence is the leading cause of injury to women aged 15 to 44. In fact, the incidence of injuries from domestic violence is greater than the combined causes of all other injuries to women. One in every four women will experience domestic violence in her lifetime. So what God is reprimanding the people of Israel for this kind of violent domestic life, this kind of violent end to domestic life didn't end with them. And I wish I could say that, that it doesn't happen in the church, but if going back to the story of Jim Palmer, one of the things that caused him to question his faith 
was the fact that he discovered one of the staff members of his church was beating his wife. Obviously, as Paul would say, brothers and sisters, these things should not be so. And if we were to go and look at the last passage that we read, chapter 217 through verse 5 of chapter 3, it clearly is introducing an entire subject, but one not completely disconnected. You see, because the people were being faithless to one another. They were being faithless to the covenant. They were being faithless to their spouses. But God is saying, I am faithful to my promises. They have wearied the Lord with their words. And they say, how have we wearied it? By saying, basically, God doesn't care. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And God responds, behold, I send my messenger. And you see, God is faithful. He is faithful to his promise. He said, I send my messenger. And John the Baptist appeared out of the wilderness of Judea, crying out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And there, as if out of nowhere, Jesus appears on the pages of history, standing at the temple, declaring the word of the Lord and announcing not only the grace of God, but the coming judgment of God, even against that temple, that temple that had been rebuilt, that temple that Jesus said, not one stone shall stand upon another. The one who said he is coming came. And the one who came said, I am coming again. But who can endure the day of his coming? So brothers and sisters, as we consider our lives, let's take heed to our spirits. Whether we're married or whether we're single, let us be faithful to the faithful God. Let us be known as those who keep their promises to one another, to our spouses and ultimately to the God of our covenant. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meditate in your word. And we do pray, Lord, as we consider these things, that you would keep us faithful, Lord. That you would keep us faithful, Father, and that you would help us to understand. Help us to understand, Lord, the the what is necessary for us to remain faithful to fear you, to love you, to serve you, to know you, Lord. And so, God, we commit ourselves into your care and keeping that we might be faithful, faithful to knowing you, faithful to growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray and ask, Lord, this for your honor and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.